Hi, uh, this is Roger Horowitz of the Hadley Center uh, with another episode of the Hadley History Hangout, where we talk to scholars who have made use of our collections, and we ask them about the things they produce from them, how they've used our materials. Part of the Hadley History Hangout are interviews with authors who have published books out of our collection, and um, that falls to me and some other people doing interviews. So today, uh, we are going to be doing a book interview with Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. Paula, thank you for being here on Zoom to talk with us. Thank you, thank you. Um, Paula has a number of roles in this world uh, these days. She, her PhD is at Florida International University and I met Paula when she was doing research for it. And of course, we've had many, a lot of business since then, uh, which I'll say things about. Um, she has a few affiliations. Uh, she is with the University of Florida uh, working in the library archives there. She's currently at this moment teaching business history at the CUNEF in Madrid. What is the CUNEF? Um, um, it stands for uh, Colegio Universitario de Estudios Financieros. It's like um, finance, business administration school. Okay, so she's teaching in Madrid um, and she is also the web editor uh, digital editor for the Business History Conference, where she maintains and operates uh, really all the digital communications that the BHC engages in, helps in organizing virtual meetings and, and plans things, initiates things. So, so Paula has a lot that she does, and we, we do a lot together. So it's, it's, it's wonderful to talk about this book, Paula. Of course, it's like met you when you're writing this as a dissertation. Um, this is great for me to see it, see this between uh, between covers. Uh, so let me just start with a very basic, but you know, question that we like to know: What got you here? What inspired you to write this book? Um, where did the inspiration come from? Thank you, Roger. I first I want to say thank you for this opportunity. It is very um, it's an honor for me to talk about uh, my book, especially uh, with you which uh, because you just mentioned, you know, with this is not the first time we meet. <laughs> We've been um, colleagues for a while and it's, um, it's always an honor to work with Hagley and with you. Um, so to respond to this question, I, I need to go back to my undergrad years and my graduate um, years, my, my graduate school years. Um, so because I'm not, it's not, you know, I, I wasn't in, inspired by having a family of, of people, of women that sew or, or having, um, of, or being sewing something important in my family. Actually, it is quite the opposite. Uh, sewing, um, you know, I come from, uh, from Spain, I'm, I'm a Spaniard and um, my family, uh, I was born in the 80s. So my family is a Spanish, family living in this transition to democracy. And um, sewing was seen as an activity done by women, right? Uh, but also like a very, like a traditional activity, something that modern women, um, especially feminist women that now not under um, Franco's Spain could do more than being, you know, mothers and wives. Um, it was done as something that if you did it, it was because of economic uh, necessity or, or because you, know, you, you believed in this um, ideal of, um, of, uh, of womanhood that had to be a wife and had to be a mother before anything else, right? 
Um, so, uh, but so I it wasn't there, right? But I still uh, kind of I think that's important because I I explain in the conclusion how this idea of domesticity and so on has uh, evolved through time, uh, and it still has uh, meaning today in those in those terms. So, but when I started uh, my BA in history and my MA also in history. I, uh, I took courses on women's history and gender studies. And, um, and with time and research, I became very interested in this practice, right, in, in sewing and, and later in embroidering. But it was more when I, when I studied uh, more about sewing that I became interested, interested also in, in embroidery. And um, so the idea is that sewing could, brought, could, could bring me to all this spectrum of women. Right, uh, women that did it for the home, but also working women, um, and women that did it uh, as a as a hobby, as a you know kind of a creative um, activity. So I thought that was very um, that was a good way of approaching this um, this film, female experience in the history of Spain. I I I I, am a, I consider myself partly a historian of Spain, but also historian of uh, Latin America, and so. Um, and so that's how, you know, I became interested in costureras, in these people, I mean, and, and seamstresses. Costureras is more um, what we would uh, call, you would call um, seamstresses and dressmakers in Spanish is, uh, is, translated as, uh, is translated as modista, right? So dressmakers is a little bit higher in the, in, you know, in the skills, supposedly. And then costureras is more, you know, that, uh, the people that would go to houses to sew or that would um, have um, like contracted, uh, like the putting out system, contracted um, material to sew and give it to someone else. Um, so, and so, okay. And then of course, and then I, I went to grad school. I went to grad school in the US. I, I uh, moved uh, to Florida and, and I got the chance to work with very, um, good um, mentors and one of them uh, was my uh, one of my advisors professor Aurora Morcillo who um, tragically passed away uh, not very um, not very long ago um, but who always would teach um, about how we should look at uh, those that are in the margins those, those that are not visible those that you know serve our uh, restaurant tables those that clean our um, our our floors and and how they also had uh, a role in the in in history right in our research and then also of course I I, I need to mention um, Kenneth Lipartito and uh, and his approach to business through culture right through uh, and the centrality of cultural values in 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 the study of the firm um, so. Kind of all that together. Uh, one day he talked about sewing machines, and I was like, "Well, I mean, the sewing machine was part of my of my research, but I had not I had not thought about kind of the business history behind it, right?" Um, and so that's how, of course, I said, "You know, my grandmother had a singer. Everyone I talked to had a singer." I was like, "Okay, well, this is <laughs> this is how you <laughs> how you start up a dissertation." <laughs> That's a great story of your of your intellectual path, you know, to that topic and finding a way a way into it. Well, I the, the book title 
uh, which I will show you all and uh, really do. We've generated capitalism, sewing machines, and multinational business in Spain and Mexico, 1850 to 1940. Uh, and we will now start picking that apart about <laughs> looking at what it covers. Let me start with the title, Gendered Capitalism, which is mm -hmm. a, a bold statement. Um, <laughs> and so for the moment, let's push aside the details on Singer and Mexico and all that, and mm -hmm. talk to me about gendered capitalism. You know, why that title? What are you trying to say with mm -hmm. that title? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so gender capitalism was not the original title uh, of my of my dissertation. It was not my dissertation title, and it was not, you know, um, what I had envisioned my, the book title would be. But um, as I reviewed my dissertation and, you know, um, and prepared it for the book, I... I, was, I became convinced that what I was studying was how global capitalism worked in spaces that uh, were commonly thought as private, as domestic, um, that were, you know, hidden, uh, not officially hidden, but hidden even by us, right, by the people looking at, at the sources, because we perhaps thought that, um, you know, a tablecloth embroidered with uh, beautiful flowers is not, you know, something that is part of capitalism, <laughs> um, of economic life, and you know, and less, and even less of um, of economic development and industrialization. All these big words, right? Um, so, so another um, kind of layer is this is this is the ideology of domesticity. Uh, which historians of uh, gender and of women and culture, uh, we were talking about this later before, sorry, um, have researched and have well understood uh, it as, uh, as hegemonic, right? As, and, I, and by this, I mean um, culturally and the mentality that, that dominated definitions of, the, of womanhood in the uh, Western world, at least in, my, you know, in the Hispanic world, at least since the 16th century. Um, so that even though perhaps sometimes this ideology of domesticity is contested, is, um, you know, not practiced, is refused, it is still was there, right, and informed um, economic life and practices. Uh, so I argue that this uh, ideology was uh, key to understand actually the business history of, of um, I mean, the, uh, of capitalism, the, uh, the history of capitalism. Uh, and so I also, in the book, I also talk about the gendered corporation, uh, also kind of between gendered capitalism and gendered corporation. And um, for me, it's also kind of a, a different approach uh, to our understanding of the firm, right? right? So I, I became a business historian uh, by coincidence, right? By the back door. I, you know, I think I should have studied some economics in my life. <laughs> That would have um, helped me a lot with, with some of the um, concepts and, and context that I perhaps struggled. Uh, but um, but I, I wasn't. I was a cultural historian. I was a, a gender historian, right? Um, so I, when, when I started looking at the firm and, you know, I, I understood that the firm is, you know, it's an institution that wants to lower costs. And, uh, and, and control the market. And, you know, um, I thought that 
also this this approach of um, of including the other uh, in a very in a very broad sense uh, was necessary, right? So, and by the other, I mean a lot a lot of others. <laughs> I mean women, of course. Uh, I mean these private uh, spaces, right? Like. Um, uh, that are that uh, domesticity or ideas of domesticity uh, describe, but also Spain and Mexico, right? Spain and Mexico are not part of mainstream uh, histories of capitalism. You know, they are not industrialized. They came late. Um, um, when they came, it was because of a miracle. <laughs> it's, it's all kind of um, kind of put on the margins. It's all peripheral, and you know. Um, and what else? There's a lot of others. There's also sewing and embroidery, right? Um, as because they these were gendered and sometimes uh, private um, uh, practices. They were also you know hadn't been uh, looked at. Um, as a practice, as a cultural practice, a meaningful practice in other histories of singer. They were looked at in other histories, for example, of, of women, women's work, right? So I draw a lot of, uh, from those, um, from that historiography as well. Um, and I guess the last other is marketing. Uh, and I've, I'll explain this better in that I, I mean, by what I mean by marketing, I mean this connection with consumers, right? So what role do consumers have uh, in the history of the corporation and the history of the multinational? And for the case of Singer, at least, um, marketing had not been um, on, you know, at the center, even though, um, even though uh, the distribution system had been studied uh, fairly well. This, it, marketing uh, for Singer was much more than just the salesman going door to door. It was, you know, it was the stores, it was the exhibits, it was uh, the schools that women um, developed later. So it was much, you know, it was a very, it was a very complex system of, uh, of this, you know, wanting to connect with the consumer than I thought um, had not been being part, you know, being uh, studied well because of this kind of um, put aside because uh, it was not important, right? It was that kind of idea that um, that was not too important for this male-dominated um, firm or management uh, to say it, but I think. Well, just to sort of comment on what you said, it, you know, especially the last part of markets, um, this session I told you, I was just in a conference, um, I made a pitch for the importance of thinking about markets because when you think about markets, you have to think about cultural constructions. Mm -hmm. Markets are not created because of, they don't, they're not there. Right. They're manufactured, they're created, they're discovered, they're they are, they are messed with. Um, and bringing markets in seemed to me to be a critical element of this gender capitalism that you want to talk about. So thinking about markets open the door to thinking about a variety of considerations as to how a certain kind of market could form. Complex, varied, but yet much more much more involved in what was going on internal to a firm's operations. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about Singer then. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, one thing that you say very clearly um, 
you don't stress it, but you make it, you say this unmistakably, that Singer was controlled by men. You know, the company management is all men. And mm -hmm. the people who are assigned to run and oversee the company in Spain and Mexico are men. And women have a role there, but they're not in management. Yet, you give women tremendously important uh, place in Singer's activities. So explain to us how women were influential, even with the hierarchy being on me. Yeah, so um, that's also why I start uh, you know, the book with, with the 1850s. Um, I have this, I mean, I, um, in the 1850s, or let's say 1840s, when Singer and other inventors were, uh, you know, patenting their their mechanisms for sewing, they were they were actually asking women to 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 test it, right? Um, they were asking the seamstresses to set, to test it, and at some point, they uh, perhaps during those decades. Um, you know, the idea that the market was going to be home sewing, the, the importance of home sewing, it perhaps wasn't so clear, right? Um, because, because for the most part, um, the first sewing machines were used in, in uh, for, you know, to create clothes for um, uniforms for the army or perhaps in hospitals for, you know, for, to create bigger amounts of, of uh, clothes and linens. Um, but very early in the you know in the history of Singer, um, the family sewing which was, sewing machine, which was some you know kind of um, that could be could fit in a house and could be used um, you know for home sewing, was um, was um, in, you know by the late eighteen fifties it was already you know the main machine that they produced. But not only the, that they produced, it was the only really real uh, machine that they invested marketing on, right? Uh, because the industrial machines were, you know, were there, there was not, not such a need of marketing. Although, for example, these trade journals that are available at Hagley do have a very uh, important, you know, do document this, this uh, conversation between manufacturers and, and, um, and sewing machine makers. But um, so, since these, this, the, early, um, the early history of Singer, women would be, for example, at showrooms. Women would be showing other people how to use the sewing machine for family sewing, for example. Um, and I have found documentation for the case of the US that also, um, that they prepared these um, little exhibits in each of these stores, um, you know, in, regularly. They also had a very big role, which would make them then be part of uh, of the managerial um, of you know of the managerial structure. Uh, they also were part of um, the first international exhibits, and they they stood there. They showed uh, they prepared the display, which was very important, of course, because whatever you had to to put on display was decided by women because they supposedly they. Um, they understood uh, why you would decorate a house or you would um, uh, create, you know, the uh, clothes for the newborn and things like that. Um, so they were there. And then um, officially they made it to the, uh, to the 
firms um, hierarchy in the in the 1890s with this creation of the embroidery department department, which was you know which would uh, take care, take care of what I just said like all the marketing is. Um, parts of the business. So the stores, the uh, exhibits, and the demonstration, right? And demonstrations. And then, so since then, mm, they were, you know, already part of the firm. In abroad, so this was in the United States, abroad, um, I could not find, um, you know, in the sources, like one uh, letter by the embroidery department in Spain, let's say. But, um, but there are sources like manuals or exhibits or mentions to, you know, uh, professoras, which was the uh, instructors uh, that women were uh, were creating and being part of all all the way. And and that is, you know, kind of the official uh, involvement of women. Um, and yeah. Well, they're the interface of the market. <clears throat> exactly. Like, uh, and that's and that's very clear. Uh, but you also hint that maybe you're saying this or not that to some extent the actual technology and the way the machine is designed and and patients mm-hmm. are maybe they're done by men, but they're based upon a women's practices. Is that a fair? Is that a fair statement? Yes. Well, especially because of this idea of the home, and you know that is. Um, that is, you know, one of the first technologies that could be um, a home appliance as well. And that could um, be part of homework. I mean, housework. Um, so, but also these, uh, all these, um, you know, the way I also um, kind of include women and gender in the story is with all this context that was being prepared and being published and being, um, you know, on display about sewing and embroidery. It was all related to this, you know, ideology of um, of the perfect woman being that woman that is, you know, that takes care of the house, that is a household manager, kind of uh, that um, that is also a mother that teaches their um, her daughters to also so. Um, so it's all this kind of family and less um, less official gift giving and social, um, you know, cultural um, system of meanings that that kind of you know kind of lifted <laughs> the idea of having a sewing machine and the idea of sewing uh, and embroidery in the house. Or you know, in Latin America, for example, um, a lot of times the sewing machine was right outside the house, right? Uh, still <laughs> close to the house, but you see that, um, that uh, perhaps because of how it was used by many other people in the town, for example, it's one sewing machine. Um, but that's also how I, I try to incorporate women in the story. Well, talk, to, talk more about embroidery. You've mentioned it several times. It fills a, a chapter in some of your award-winning articles. About um, how do you use embroidery in the story and analytically, and then what does it tell you? What does embroidery, focusing on embroidery, tell you about this gender capitalism of singer? Mm-hmm. Well, so embroidery is a very um, 
interesting um, industry, right? It, uh, the way Singer used it was uh, very early on when uh, social reformers were concerns about outside the house, outside the home, and um, they took the practice as kind of uh, to show that that um, that sewing and embroidery, right, these uh, home practices were also art. They were practices that women could do and demonstrate creativity and not just, you know, their um, gendered or female uh, appropriate um, um, practices. So the idea that, um, and so Singer would, for example, focus a lot in exhibitions uh, with embroidery. They would, um, the exhibitions that women created were very much focused about on, you know, on frames, right? Or very, very intricate embroidery, fine embroidery that was made with a sewing machine, right? Uh, so it served that purpose of demystifying the, I mean, not well, of um, again, uplifting uh, sewing as something that was not only work, it was creative, it was art. Um, in the case of, I mean, for, for example, in, in gift giving and family practices, embroidery has a very powerful meaning because for example, when, you, when uh, there's a newborn, uh, families would have to create the ajuar, which is not called ajuar for, for, for babies, but uh, it's kind of this set of towels and bed sheets and you know, a little bit of clothes and that would be part of, of uh, that would be given to that baby born. And it was either the mother or the grandmother or the aunt, you know, it was the, fam the women of the family who would make that for that uh, specific child. And embroidery serves to, to decorate that, right? To ornament um, all that sewing and make it um, beautiful and make it, um, you know, this idea to define it as, as, a, as something that, um, and also kind of permanent, right? If you just create bed seats that are all white and have nothing <laughs> in them, then there's no, there's no um, that there's no meaning that attaches, you know, the person that made it to to the uh, to the object. So embroidery did that, right, and kind of um, threaded that <laughs> that uh, idea that there was some the women in the family had made it. Um, and it was also done very importantly for, uh, for weddings. So a woman would, in the case of Spain and in Mexico, a woman would create, would make their own uh, dowry, which, I mean, it was, it could be translated to a dowry is the, is the, um, yeah, it's a what is like the, um, the group of gifts. Use the word, use the word the trousseau, I think in your book. Is that correct? The trousseau? Right, the trousseau, that's right, exactly. That I forgot the name in, in, in English. But, um, well, that's kind of a French. It is French. It is understood, yes. So that's it, right. So um, it was women themselves who made it for themselves for their wedding, or again, the women of the family, right? Uh, 
So in this case, it was very important to, to always have the initials to the lettergrams, right? To the mono, how do you call them in, in English? Mono, monograms? Monogram. Monogram. Right. Um, and you would, um, you would put the initials of the husband and the, you know, and the wife and, and all of the uh, set would be uh, the same way with this embroidery. Also, um, tablecloths, right? So everything, everything related to the house, to the house that that woman was going to be managing um, very soon after getting married uh, was, was um, had to be embroidered because to kind of get that uh, symbolism. Um, so Singer had all this, you know, library of manuals to how to do this. Uh, the professoras and instructors, um, you know, in, in, in Mexico, in, in Spain, but also in, in the United States had to, um, I mean, knew how to teach this. And it was part of their curriculum. It was, um, and, and that, that gave, you know, I, I believe that gave a very special place to, to singer among other competitors that, you know, they, they could not, they, they did it so early. <laughs> they catch on that um, link, you know, between embroidery art and, and the home so fast that um, <laughs> until, um, you know, until well into the uh, late 1930s, 1940s, Singer did not find a competitor really um, for, for its sewing machines. Well, with the embroidery, just a follow-up question. Um, one of the pictures you present is the extent to which these vernacular embroidery practices, like the ones you described, um, become are assimilated by Singer into its prescriptive literature. Uh, how does that happen? Where this, this is the larger point about the gender capitalism that women have these practices. Mm -hmm. Singer is is riding with those practices, how does it actually work itself out, the dynamic between women's practices and singers sort of, if you will, marketing in this area of embroidery? Right, so I think there's a very um, like kind of direct way, which is again, these women, um, you know, being part of the company, even though we don't have records of them being uh, on, the, on the salary page, right? On the salary records. Um, Although we do for the United States, there's two boxes in the archives um, that have that. Um, but for the case of, um, but again, is this kind of um, system, right, of cult of um, of values of meanings that that was contextual to to singers, um, you know, uh, development and kind of. Um, evolution of marketing strategies and, and management that that could not be separated and and it kind of it may have happened organically right I mean if if there is a contextual um, idea that that we are going to focus on home sewing and this is key uh, you know we all know it's not that we all know that but it's kind of um, it kind of becomes um, it had to become central to to their um, to their decision making and and conversations about who was who were the buyers of sewing machines. Okay. Well, you mentioned that 
um, at some point, 20s, 30s, uh, embroidery fades a bit and dressmaking becomes more important in singers' uh, activities. Mm -hmm. uh, why does that happen? How does that happen? That, and, I mean, it reflects probably the long, the breadth of your book. You go 90 years, and one of the things that you are able to do is manage this change. The changes mm -hmm. over time, significant changes. And one of them is a shift. So how does this shift take place, and how does it still work inside your in the analytic frame? That you're doing? Right. So again, I mean, uh, part of the foundation of my book, I think, is that we cannot detach, detach this history of the corporation from everything else, right? Uh, so um, in the 1920s, 1930s, there is a change uh, related to what is the role of women in society, right? It's the birth of the, of the modern women. We see more uh, women working outside. We see the first... Um, the first uh, suffrage mo movements being successful. We see um, this idea of the independent woman being more, um, being more um, like uh, taken, right? Uh, like followed. Um, and then, but on the other side, uh, so, and, and then also this is, and this is the time when this um, formalization of uh, gendered a specific uh, vocational school. I mean, the schooling and, and education kind of uh, becomes um, clear, right? And it happens in the US with, the, with home economics. It happens in Spain. It happens in Mexico after the, uh, the Mexican revolution when you know, this idea of the modern woman is, yes, is socialist, is independent, is, uh, but, is still the mother of the of you know, <laughs> and um, and so yes, you could have um, you could have skills right to make yourself um, marketable, I guess you could say, or um, or or if it's needed, you could uh, um, participate in you know in market in the uh, in some exchange with your work, but. Um, Still, you know, that vocational education, which is very much, you know, directed to, you know, to professionalize uh, certain um, jobs for women is going to be focused on, on sewing and embroidery. And, um, but embroidery kind of go, you know, kind of uh, is put aside because it is, um, it's more um, related now to this idea. This embroidery is now how you learn or how you become introduced into, into women's roles, right? So you, when you're small, you start embroidering and then uh, cutting and, and making clothes is, requires lots, much more um, skills if it's not artistic, right? Um, and so that's what schools would teach you and not embroidery. Um, even though, you know, it was assumed that these women that go, that went to schools for, um, for home economics or for just uh, dressmaking, they would already know, you know, kind of the basics of embroidery and, um, and basting, right? Which is the use of the steel with the uh, needle, like to make the, um, the lines for, to then uh, put, put it in the sewing machine. Now, so, 
Now, you mentioned to me, I mean, partly the shift is also that with embroidery, which you alluded to at the beginning. Yeah. Embroidery emphasizes much more the sort of the ornamentation, the personalization of white goods and other kinds of products there. Um, but what's, what's peculiar about the dressmaking phase is this is taking place at the same time that in the literature, we know that ready-to-wear women's clothing is mm-hmm. much more widely available. So, yeah. you know, so to some extent, there's something puzzling here about how, you know, given the rise of ready-to-wear women's wear, why is dressmaking becoming increasingly popular and effective for Singer as a marketing device for its machines? <clears throat> well, so in the case of, of Spain and Mexico, ready-to-wear um, clothing or industry is not available until much later. Um, there are, um, there are of course, factories um, that, that, you know, uh, that produce um, ready-to-wear clothes, but it's mostly very simple clothes. I mean, very, um, you know, it would be like t-shirts, things that are like for regular wear, but not um, kind of more formal uh, clothing, right? In the case of Spain, for example, you uh, people would still um, go to the modista, to the dressmaker. Uh, of course, if you were of uh, of a kind of middle class, upper class um, level, even in this in the nineteen eighties, right, nineteen seventies and eighties. Uh, that's I don't think the case for the U.S. Um, but. Uh, and then in Mexico is the same, right? Uh, it's very much, it's really late in 19, well, late, you know, as um, perhaps in comparison to the US, but um, it's later in the 1960s, 70s, when uh, there is more, um, you know, kind of openness to, to foreign uh, um, investment that there is more um, uh, ready to work. But, for the most part in rural areas, even and even in the small towns, perhaps in Madrid, perhaps in Mexico City, there will be there, there were department stores, right, with some um with some of this clothing, ready-made clothing. But it was very um it was very delayed in the case of Spain and Mexico. So for the most part, people made and repair their clothes in the house. They would have um you know, um, in the home and they would, or within a very, um, with not so commercialized, uh, in a not so commercialized uh, space, like a department store or things like that. It would be very much like within communities, like, you know, uh, small stores perhaps uh, that would um, provide the, the different tools, but, and, and materials. Um, but also, you know, this ready-made clothing is, it was also before the 19th century. And there were also factories in Mexico and Spain uh, of, um, for ready-made clothing. And, you know, it still was not the norm to get your clothes uh, in these places. Just perhaps, you know, some of the clothes, uh, perhaps just, you know, the t-shirt, the underwear, things like that. Well, that- that, that your answer raises another question that the, um, the rise of um, ready to wear 
uh, in the West um, mm -hmm. is associated with the rise of the fashion system that mm -hmm. right away intersects with the growth of fashion and style right. and all that. Um, is that happening in a different way in Mexico and, and Spain? In other words, is the intersection of style and fashion intersecting instead with the rise and expansion of dressmaking? by women in either the home or small businesses and things like that. And there's a different sort of pattern than might happen in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a good um, point. And um, I would say, yes, it, it is happening along these lines, along with you know this idea, uh, this development of fashion as also something that would make, if, if a woman made it, herself could you know uh, also showed independence and um and skills um for the I, I was thinking also for the case of of japan um andrew gordon has a, has studied you know the introduction of the sewing machine and i believe that the, the fashion industry also developed really fast from the introduction of the sewing machine uh but still it kind of stay balanced with this idea that also women could do it at home. And so if you could, if you wanted better clothes, if you wanted nicer clothes and you did not have the means to, to do so, or um, you did not, um, or it wasn't available perhaps, uh, then you could do it yourself. And this idea of, you know, um, do it yourself and have it, um, it's also very, would also be very, uh, important. Well, this, I mean, to, to move away from dressmaking, dressmaking in particular, which is related, one of your intriguing findings is, is the extent to which women use Singer machines in ways that Singer didn't imagine and frankly weren't, weren't very happy with. You know, their, their notion is really the machines intersecting with domesticity in the home. The domesticity may change, but still there is a domestic ideal which is part of it. And you show that women found different ways and did different things with the machines and the company intended. Uh, tell us about some of those practices, some of those things, the challenges of singers notion. Yeah, well, I'm going to say, and it's not only women, but it's because uh, we don't know if it's only women and or both women and men. But for example, for the case of Mexico, and this also goes um, within the argument of this uh, planes between capitalism and gender um, and is the um, so the sewing machine that is uh, that has all the accessories right has the um, has the pedal the pedal has the uh, table could have some drawers draw, uh, drawers uh, to put the you know um, your your materials and then it has a top also that could be, um, you know, put. So, so it has a lot of parts. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very, um, also it's a, it's a furniture, right? It's a, it's a piece of furniture as well. So in Mexico, for example, um, these machines would be taken apart sometimes and be put in, in the pawn shop, right? And, and so, um, Salesmen in, 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 in Mexico went crazy with this because they had, they would see, uh, 
you know, the head only of the sewing machine in this in the pawn shop. And they would ask the person, the, the pawn shop uh, owner, who, you know, who gave you this? And they, you know, this is all written in, in like legal cases. And, and it was, you know, it was a woman who had given it to them, but that uh, she had assured them that they were going to be back for them uh, because it was a great business uh, that she was, you know, doing with, um, you know, with sewing and whatever. And so, um, and of course, I mean, Singer perhaps just lost all of these uh, machines um, and that were sold on credit, right? Um, the, the other, uh, the other um, I guess, way is this kind of collective usage of the sewing machine. This idea that the sewing machine should be, you know, in your house and for just one person, definitely not how it worked uh, in neither Spain nor Mexico, because, um, for example, there was this position of the costurera that would come to your house, of course, higher, you know, uh, kind of middle to higher um, class uh, families. And so everyone would use that sewing machine, but the costurera would, who would come to their house also used it. In towns, in little towns, for example, um, I don't have this in the book, but now I'm interviewing women. Um, in a town, usually there were about two or three sewing machines. And if there were 50 houses, all of them would, you know, perhaps use the same three um, sewing machines. So, but still it was, a, you know, it was profitable for Singer, you know, the fact that all these little towns would at least have three sewing machines. Um, yeah, and I can think of something else. Uh, of course, the cases of embroidery, like how, you know, how they would, they would make this, um, this, and, you know, because it's a small book and perhaps it's also the, um, um, I don't know if it's the size or, but I couldn't put some of the uh, pictures of embroidery, but there are amazing images uh, of, of window fronts of embroidery, like for example, ships made of embroidery and they supposedly were all made of in the sewing machines. So they were used as embroidery machines, right? The, you know, industrialization of embroidery, which is, which now is very common. Now every, all embroidery that you see is made with machine, but a sewing machine that is made for plain sewing to be used in embroidery is a different thing. <laughs> back a minute about your, 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 your towns, if you think about it, having two or three machines used by 50 people is an effort to make efficient use of a capital good. Because one of the, one of the problems always in, in business right. practices is you, you buy the machines and if you let the machines sit idle, you're losing the possibility of generating profit from the use of these machines that you invested in. So in very capital intensive industries like steel, we know they run 24 hours a day to make useful machines. So to have two or three machines that are shared by many people makes economic sense. Mm -hmm. Because two or three families can't make full use of those machines just for their personal needs. It makes sense in a much more sort of large environment. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it suggests to me, again, this is, and this is related to talk to the discussion of credit, that women use these machines, or women and men, as a form of business investment. 
you know, that singer's argument, and, and it's very much on the sort of family use, the embroidery, the women in the home, this middle class ideal, but it, it becomes transmuted or transformed into essentially capital goods for business enterprises you know, by women in this process. Right, and that's what uh, chapter four really talks about. So I, I mean, the book is a structure, it goes from global to local, global to local, right? Um, so the last book, the last chapter talks about this um, sewing at home, which continues to be very important until, like I say, I, you know, in Spain, through the 1980s, um, especially because of the dictatorship and how, and, you know, the ideas uh, of, about womanhood that were, um, you know, the dominated, dominating uh, ideas. And, but also in, in Mexico, right? I mean, mm, historians of gender have explained this, how patriarchy is just mo- gets, gets modified, but it's not, um, it's not transformed with uh, with revolutions, unfortunately. Right? There's not there's not a change uh, in how women continue to be um, relegated to a different position than men, uh, even if you know the revolution perhaps claimed to be uh, calling for you know for more power and more visibility to women for women. Um, so in the case of, of Mexico, it continues also to be like that. But um, is this idea that in all of the ideological, you know, throughout the ideological spectrum, right, Catholic womanhood in the case of Spain um, and, and, you know, Mexican womanhood um, after the revolution, these women, because they were, you know, offered to be professional in sewing, um, could actually make you know a business from the, for themselves either in the house or they created their own dressmaking uh, academias, which is like um, schools, right? And um, and or tiendas or stores. So so if you ask anyone you know in Spain about uh, academias or modistas, it was it was part of of their um, of their experience as women, like either as consumers or as makers, but it was not, everyone would have a story or at least a memory about it. Um, And it's still today. Well, I want to ask a couple more questions because it was fascinating, but I want to start bringing it to a close, but I want to ask you about Spain and Mexico. Um, You know, you mentioned early on that you encouraged by your advisor to look at the margins and Partly that story is looking at gender and women, but partly you mentioned looking at Spain and Mexico. Uh, and your book is not just about Spain and Mexico. There's a lot about senior internationally and practices, and you sort of focus down on those two areas. Um, what do you think it adds to your story that you have mm-hmm. these cases in Spain and Mexico rather than, for example, say France and the United States? Um, well, so... So I have gotten that question a lot, like why Spain and Mexico, right? And again, there's a direct answer and it's that Singer's system was first, you know, um, formed in its, you know, the vertical integration of uh, of the different, well, actually it was not, um, uh, there was never production in neither uh, Spain nor Mexico, but in the, uh, you know, establishment of, 
the selling structure singer uh, Spain and Mexico were the first in this Hispanic world that had it. Um, so I want to be clear in that I don't mean to put uh, to bring um, this the case of Spain and Mexico to kind of um, kind of say okay so they were also part of this uh, the um, development or this um, economic history of global capitalism, but more, but also not because, you know, if we look at less industrialized nations, we'll have to look at, yeah, at culture because there is no other um, way. No, uh, so the idea is, in my, in my perspective, is uh, to show that, um, you know, this, all these global processes have also a local story and that is also it's not it's neither more important or less important but that we need to understand that uh to understand the whole process uh if not and it's also to tell the story from from you know uh, from places where usually it's not told right this is the story of global capitalism usually you wouldn't you wouldn't find us uh, a history of global capitalism from the from we wouldn't know with the case of spain well <laughs> sounds like you know it looks it did it, it did happen and there are um and and spain has its own experience of global capitalism uh as mexico does and um and it's it's you know, is as important as others. And it shows, again, different scenarios, right? Different uh, planes and ways in which capitalism works uh, and has worked um, in, uh, in the last two centuries. Very good. Well, um, to the final question, um, you know, your, your book is gonna be read. You're gonna be active for a while uh, <laughs> in the field. Um, you may get questions or suggestions or thoughts as to what would broaden this, what would take the gender capitalism vector, if you will, and widen it? How would a scholar who's thinking about this, likes your analysis, where might they go with this? Where might they look for perhaps other venues, other places, other, other um, you know, sites of practices? Um, give us some advice for where someone might go if they weren't do this, this again this is how it frame further so um i think what's important is that uh in my perspective to understand business and perhaps even more international business uh where there is even more I, am i still connected oh, yes oh yes okay i i got this message <laughs> uh, where there is even more diversity of mentalities, right? So you, when you were talk about business, of course, there's a lot of, uh, of social and cultural um, aspects to, to take into consideration. But when you do it in a transnational perspective, the diversity just grows and grows, right? There is uh, different mentalities. There is um, different economies. There are different actors, political contexts. And so my... Uh, my advice would be to look deeper into these mentalities and cultural values because there would be there perhaps is the answer to why you know a corporation was created, for example, or how or why it had the business history that it had. Um, so, also in terms of archives and and, and documents, um, I was 
you know, I came from the other side, <laughs> right? I, um, so for me, visual culture was very, was key. But what I wanted to learn was, you know, how business was part of everyday life, but also how everyday life became also business <laughs> and international business. Um, so, so I had to go to not only the records uh, of the multinational, which are uh, in Wisconsin and a very large collection also at the Soda House in Hagley, but in Hagley, you know, even the more visual sources are separated, right? So they are separated in the in the um, in the pictorial uh, collection where you have pictures and trade cards and um, and of course the the wonderful um, trade journals, which actually um, I have to to do um, a sort of to um, Pamela Laird, who gave me that advice in at the um, doctoral colloquium of the BHC. Um, so, and that was kind of also the beginning of of looking for more. I even have, you know, an experience of asking other scholars about sources, uh, business sources, and you know, and getting no, there's nothing more. That's you know, Wisconsin is, that's it. I was like, okay. Um, well, it turns out that um, the subsi- well, subsidiary or the um, singer in Great Britain had developed this marketing review, um, you know, a, a magazine on marketing um, practices and experiences of different salesmen and saleswomen around the world. And they were all in Glasgow. You know, and I had, you know, I had, I just went to Glasgow to see the old factory um, because I was interested in it and went to the public library and asked and I said you know is there anything for Singer and I said well they we have these pictures of the house of Isaac Singer and and then we have all this uh, I think it's one it's four decades of monthly magazine so, so just imagine right so and that's it and it's all about marketing around the world um, so, and then of course, you know, I would say again, you know, all these little things hidden like embroidery or the, you know, the recipes from your house, at your house that were getting, were gotten from your grandmother, all those things, um, are, you know, are key. And especially again, in the 19th and 20th century, when multinationals are just part of our lives, um, we could probably trace, you know, the commodity chain and uh, of a lot of our, of our things and and end up in a mountain <laughs> or at least in a global, um, you know, market uh, structure that ha- that could explain where it comes from. Your answer is in part to think about the kind of practices you want to explore. Exactly. Think about how discussions of those practices are going to reverberate and manifest themselves in trade journals, catalogs, material culture, and large mm-hmm. amounts of material that may not have anything to do with the corporation behind them. Yeah. Um, also, um, one last thing is that it's oral histories. And I was not able to do that as much as I wanted um, for the book or the dissertation. And so, um, but now I'm doing it now that I, you know, um, I'm not sure where they are going to go, but I'm doing it just, you know, for, for, to keep that record 
um, because it's not there. Um, it's not available. And at least I'll have it if anyone wants to use it in the future or myself. But this idea of asking women, why do you sew? Like, what, what is it? You know, and, and the question is very, it's not easy for them either. Because it's like, well, I do it because I learned how to do it. Uh, and so, but, you know, it would actually, I think it's going to make me think about that mentality. Why, why, why? Because you're a woman, would you know? Would you want to sew or embroider? Well, terrific. We could we could you know talk for an hour, which I think is, is enough okay. to put you through. Um, this is a great book. I hope people you know buy it, read it. Gender capitalism, sewing machines, and multinational business in Spain and Mexico. Paul Cruz Fernandez. And if you decide to associate yourself in any way with the Pacific Conference, you will also see her in your inbox as a web editor. And we'll see more from her uh, in her research. Uh, Paula, thank you for being with us and talking with us for so long. Thank you so much. And we will have more episodes of Patrick History Hangout coming up. Uh, take care and thanks for your interest.